The Lord sits enthroned in the heavens, and we are all his people, and he is in sovereign control, even over printers that don't work in the office. So this morning is going to be a test of faith for me, and uh, I ask for grace on your behalf as we, with just our Bibles open before us, go to the Lord. Uh, We're beginning a series on the book of Habakkuk, a scattered series where I'll return to it uh, every few weeks. It's a small book. You can turn to it now. It's um, one of the minor prophets. It comes right after the book of Nahum, right before the book of Zephaniah. Earlier in the week when I was crafting my sermon I began by recounting the kind of cultural decay and societal slide into immorality that marked the time and atmosphere of when Habakkuk the prophet was writing. And as I wrote it, I I kind of did so provocatively to make it sound like, though I didn't stretch the imagination, as if it were today. In fact, as I think we read through the Minor Prophets and we, we read through Habakkuk, and as we'll come back and see time and time again, uh, the societal surrounding and cultural atmosphere of Habakkuk's day was very much in line with things that we see today. Lawlessness, a distrust of justice, and an overwhelming desire to seek after decadence and just having a good time. So much so that the the weight of that was crushing the culture and the people of the Israelites. But then I thought, you know, we come together on Sunday mornings to come before God. And all too often, my Twitter feed and my news and the newspaper, and the conversation of friends is drawing me to get wrapped up in the events of the world, no doubt we've all been thinking about over this past week, and how good and right it is for us as God's people to come together on Sunday morning and to say, no, I won't be drawn into the worship of the world and the frenzied noise that the news brings out of us, but instead focus and calm my heart and look to God Alone. In fact, if you open up to Habakkuk chapter 2 and look there at verse 20, I think that verse will set the tone and tenor, hopefully, of our morning now. Habakkuk 2 verse 20. Habakkuk cries out, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Our world is noisy, cacophonous, and clamoring for our attention and how good it is to gather here as God's people and to sit silent before the holiness and glory of our God who sits sovereignly enthroned in his temple. So before we open up the book, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Father, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to pierce into the depths of our hearts, separating between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, 
And Father, we are in need of its mighty work in our midst now. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word, we look at the prophecy of Habakkuk, that we might be encouraged in faithfulness in light of dark times surrounding us. Now, Father, we pray that we would do so in and only through Christ, who is our only light, our only rock of salvation. Guide us and lead us, we pray, and sanctify us, and conform us even now to be more made into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we might bring him all glory and praise. In his name, amen. Well, Habakkuk is a short book, only three chapters. And what I want to do this morning is really briefly open it up and, and, and fly over at, uh, at 30,000 feet. We're not going to unpack the riches of it, uh, precisely because we'll do that in successive weeks as we come back and look chapter by chapter. Habakkuk uh, lived during the late 600s, uh, which was a time when the Assyrian Empire was in the descendancy And uh, uh, during his time, as we see in the book, uh, Israel itself was beginning to kind of trust in their own wealth, trust in their own freedoms again, uh, beginning to think that uh, they were all that in a bag of chips. But the prophecy that God wants to give Habakkuk stops him and stops them in that vision. Habakkuk was most likely a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, probably heard him preach a few times, probably knew Nahum and knew of his prophecies. But other than that, we don't know much about Habakkuk uh, other than chapter 1, verse 1. He was a prophet, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Now, as the book is laid out, it seems to be broken up into two main sections here. The first section is in chapters 1 and chapter 2, where there's this kind of back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And then the second section, chapter 3, is kind of Habakkuk's final response of praise. It's it's literally a psalm written. So if you look at the end of the book, in chapter uh, 3, verse 19, it ends with saying to the choir master, with stringed instruments. He's he's written a psalm to be sung in praise to God. Part 1 opens with Habakkuk praying, a kind of complaint. Look there in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk looks around him at the culture around him of his fellow Israelites, and he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Do you hear his complaint here? As he looks around and he He sees the the very people who ought to be protecting us and upholding justice pervert justice and we're afraid of them. The very people of whom we're supposed to honor and give our respect, we respond to them with violence. And the law, (laughs) that's a joke. Where is that? But that doesn't seem to be his main concern here, does it? What's his main concern? Look there again at verse 2. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
and you will not save. Why do you, verse 3, look idly by at wrong? What's his main contention here? It seems to be at God's silence in the face of utter chaos and suffering and sin and evil. Now, I could preach a whole hour on just that, and I won't because I want to save my sermon for the future, and we'll have to come back and look at this. But, but just note that in the midst of suffering, what does Habakkuk do? Well, he goes to God in prayer, and he seems to kind of presuppose here that though God doesn't seem to be answering him in his previous prayers, he knows God can do something. He knows God is sovereign. We'll come back to that. In verses 5 through 11, it seems that here God does finally give an answer. But it's not the answer that Habakkuk expected. Let's read that. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a.k.a. the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. What's God saying to Habakkuk here? I hear your complaint, Habakkuk. I realize that you think in the midst of the ongoing evil and suffering and despair you see around you in the culture, that I must be silent and absent and totally apathetic, not caring. No, I do care. And I will bring judgment. And here's how I'm going to do it. I will raise up the Babylonians, that godless nation who thirsts after conquering and bloodthirst. And I will use them to bring judgment upon you. Oh, says Habakkuk. Well, that's, that's not what I was praying about. I didn't see that coming. And so he kind of responds in verses 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Oh, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See his second complaint there? Okay, God, I I get it. You're dealing with our sin and evil, but really? You're going to use somebody more sinful, more evil, more wicked than we are to judge us? That doesn't seem fair. And yet he ends his prayer in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Lo and behold, God gives his second answer to Job, uh, Habakkuk's second complaint. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, 
Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so we may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is going to happen, Habakkuk. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. We'll come back to that. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then in the rest of chapter 2, he goes on to give these woe after woe after woe against Babylon. In other words, what God answers Habakkuk's second complaint, yes, Habakkuk, it does seem unfair, right, that I am using a worse nation than you to judge you. But know this, they're under my sovereign control. And though they meant it for evil, I mean it for good. Do you not hear the echoes here of Joseph and his 12 brothers? Oh, and by the way, I will bring destruction upon them as well. Yes, you're getting judged. Don't worry, Habakkuk. Their evil is not out of sight, out of mind for me. Look there at... um, Chapter 2, sorry, chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The last time the Lord talked about the waters covering the sea, was when he sent a flood. And here he's saying, look, all nations will at one point know my power and glory and justice. Don't worry, Habakkuk. Babylon will fall under my righteous judgment as well. Well, Habakkuk now hears all this. I'm sure he meditated upon it for at least a week. And then he writes chapter 3, which is his song of praise and rejoicing in light of what God has just promised to come. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, I hear you, Lord. It's going to happen. I get it. And I have to admit, I'm absolutely terrified. But in the midst of your judgment of Babylon coming under your sovereign control to bring justice and judgment upon us and our sin, God, would you remember your mercy? Would you revive your care for us? And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 3 to kind of recount and and remember what God did through the exodus of how God brought judgment upon Egypt and out of that saved his people. And then he ends in in the end of chapter 3. Look there at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What's he doing? He's looking around him, and he's saying, everything is not as it ought to be. God, you promised that we'd live in a land flowing with milk and honey, blossoms coming out of the tree. Our, our herds would be great. Everything would be prosperous. And I look around, and especially with the coming of Babylon, and I see... None of that. Verse 18. Yet, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Oh, and by the way, this is to be sung as a praise for God's people from here on out. What's he doing? He's picking up on that phrase back in chapter 2, verse 4, where God says, the righteous shall live by faith. And he says, I look around me, and there's nothing at all in the scenario and in the situation of our own moral decay and then the coming destruction of Babylon, which tells me everything's going to be all right. But, God, you have promised. And so in that promise, I will believe. For you have said the righteous shall live by faith. That's pretty much the book of Habakkuk in a nutshell. What's that, 10 minutes? We could end there and say, okay, we've got the book of Habakkuk, but I won't. Uh, If Pastor Mike was up here, we'd have at least 60 more minutes to go. That's not true. Um, What I want to do now is kind of step back and say, what are four big themes? Not the only things, not, 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 not everything, but four big things that I think we see here in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and if I remember correctly, they're this. One is that though there is evil in the world, God is sovereignly reigning even over that evil. Secondly, God will bring his judgment against evil. So God is sovereignly reigning over evil. God will bring his judgment against evil. Thirdly, in the midst of evil, it is the righteous who live by faith. And then fourthly, God gets his glory by bringing salvation through judgment. God gets his glory by bringing about salvation through judgment. So let's look at those four. The first is that even though evil seems to be reigning in the world and we look around us and there's suffering and sin, God is still in sovereign control even over that. We see that, of course, right in Habakkuk's complaint as he sees evil everywhere. But then look at the Lord's answer again in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, look among the nations, see and wonder and be astonished. And then he says, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And then verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. In other words, God is giving Habakkuk a reason to look at him and actually put his faith in him. You look around you, Habakkuk, and it seems as if it's chaotic, and, 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 and you ask, where are you, God? Where are you? Why, why, why? Don't people ask that all the time and come out the other side and say, I don't believe in God anymore? They ask the question, if there is all this evil, then how could there be a good and right God? And what Habakkuk gets from God here is that, no, God is entirely in control of even the evil actions of men and nations. Yes, Babylon after their own selfish and sinful desire to conquer and control, and as we read in the Psalms, bash the heads of babies against rocks. God uses even that to bring about a greater good. 
Now, nowhere does the Bible ever argue that God is the author of sin. We know in James 1.17 that no one can say when they're being tempted by God that God tempts us because God himself is not tempted by evil, nor either because he tempts anybody with evil. We also see in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that God is not the author of confusion, a.k.a. he is also not the author of evil. No, but what the scriptures do affirm from Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation is that in the midst of evil, in the worst suffering pain ever, God is not in heaven saying, whoa, I'm not sure what to do with that. God never responds like Habakkuk does here. Why, why, why? God always responds by saying, yes, that is bad, but I will use it for my good and glory. Now, of course, the greatest argument for that is the cross of Christ, is it not? Could it not be argued that the greatest evil and the worst sin ever accomplished in all history was the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he hung there upon the cross? And the people of God cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And the Roman guards mocked him and stabbed him and put a crown of thorns upon his head. And yet, could we not also argue in the same breath that out of that great evil, God brought about the greatest good and, and glory that man has ever seen? namely the salvation of all mankind? Uh, There is not one instance in which God in his perfect sovereign wisdom does not say, man, I don't know what to do here. But he works all things out according to our good and his glory is his sovereign king. And this instills faith in us. If that is what I think the main thing going on in Habakkuk is all about is our faith in God. Who of us could really put our faith in a God who is constantly in heaven saying, oops. No, no, no. God is drawing Habakkuk to put strong faith in a strong God, precisely because he's sovereignly strong. That leads us to our second point. Not only that God is sovereignly in control of evil, but secondly, that God will deal with all evil. I think we... See this um, in God's second answer, chapter 2, starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so we may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. But then he, he lays out these woes and Woe to him, chapter 2, verse 6, who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Uh, Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. On and on he goes, God is saying, I will bring judgment against Babylon for their evil. Now, to be clear, for us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, judgment does not await us. Oh, by the way, though God promises judgment against Babylon, is it not true as we read the rest of the story on into Revelation chapter 20? that a time of great tribulation and a day of judgment awaits us? 
Have you read chapter 20, verses 11 and following? Listen here. The Apostle John tells us, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, je- the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to everything that they had done. There still stands a great day of final judgment for every person who has ever lived, in which at that point every thought, word, and deed will be laid bare, and God judges according to those actions. And yet the truth of the gospel is that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, well, that judgment has already been taken care of, has it not? That as Jesus, who was the perfect and sinless Son of God, came incarnate and lived among us and faithfully walked in full obedience to God the Father and everything he thought, said, and did, and then died unfairly upon the cross, what happened there upon the cross? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we who believe in him might become the righteousness of God. There was the divine flip-flop of accounts. Our sin placed upon him so that while he was there dying, God's wrath was placed upon him. Oh, and by the way, if we then put our faith in him, God will not punish twice for what he's already fully punished and done in Christ his son. Christ ended his life by saying, it is finished. But the truth does still remain that For those who are not in Christ, judgment still awaits. For those who have not put their faith in the atoning work and blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, evil will be dealt with. Now, a lot of people look around and they say, I I see this evil world, and I see the the, the suffering and the sin, and I I look at what's going on in Syria, and and I look at the, the unfairness in societies around the world, and all of that screams to me that there is no God. I mean, either he is an all-powerful God that's evil and is willing to put up with evil, or he is a good God, but he's just not that all-powerful. He can't deal with it. And so out of that, people say, I I cannot believe in God. But I think the answer to that is really kind of simple. He's both powerful, and he's also all good, but he's also incredibly gracious. You see, the answer to that is that God is not judging evil yet. I mean, could you imagine if God were to thoroughly wipe out all evil at midnight tonight? He'd have to do a complete job, would he not? He'd have to deal with all our lies, our lack of love, all the times we've failed to do good to the other, every little sin and thought, and God would do a complete job. Which of us would survive into the morning? I don't think any of us. And yet how good it is that God is gracious and he's not wiped out evil like that. So for those of us who have not yet put our faith in Christ, I urge you, I beg you, 
time is on, well, it's not on your hand, but God has given you time to repent. God has given you time to turn away from sin and to find your only hope in the day of that coming judgment in Jesus Christ, the Son. If you are here as somebody who has not believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I, I plead with you, do so now. For a day will come when the books are opened and everything that you've done against him will be laid out and God will deal with evil. That brings us to the third point that we see in the book of Habakkuk. Namely, that the righteous shall live by faith. I think that this is the center theologically of the book, and we see that there in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, God says, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I need to restrain my tongue here as there's lots I want to pour out, but that'll be another sermon. But namely, what God is telling Habakkuk here is that in, in the midst of a world and a scene that seems as if nothing is going your way, it seems as if God is not in control. Look, Habakkuk, I am. And if you are to survive the coming judgment, if you are to be a full recipient of my mercy, you are to be one who puts his faith in me. The righteous shall live by faith. Israel prayed and read uh, out of Hebrews for us that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Isn't that what faith really is? That, that, that when the world seems to be crumbling, by faith we say, yeah, God is in charge. Isn't that faith when we say, my life is continually marked and marred by temptation and sin? I seem to be crawling by the Spirit, much less walking by the Spirit. And yet I believe, in Christ I'm forgiven. Faith is that simple means by which God has given us to simply accept his promises. And when that happens, we are humbled and he is glorified and he is made great in saying, yes, I accept that. And that is what life is. That's what righteousness is, is by believing in me. Now for Habakkuk, that looked like believing in the promised mercy that God would give. But there's hints here, hints that he pointed forward to a a more fuller mercy by which we shall live by faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Habakkuk is praying. He's singing of God's redemptive heroic acts in the past. And he says there in verse 13, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, Um, in the Hebrew, that word anointed is Mashiach, which we get our word Messiah. And then the next part of verse 13, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Do you not hear the tones here from that great gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will bear an anointed one, a Messiah, who will crush the head of the serpent. And here I think Habakkuk picks up on that great theme and he reframes it here in his own context to say God will do that again. And he looks forward to a time when all evil will finally be crushed by the heel of the Messiah. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus Christ is the fullest proclamation to the world 
that God hates evil and will do away with it. I mean, he so hates evil that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Habakkuk is kind of pointing forward by saying, yes, faith in God will find its fulfillment in God's people putting faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The last theme, and I think this one is, for me, the most interesting, is that God gets glory by showcasing or bringing about his salvation through judgment. God brings about salvation through judgment. This is really seen throughout the whole book. Habakkuk is complaining that God will bring Babylon to bear in judgment upon his own people. That's unfair, God. But God answers and says, I will bring judgment upon them too. And here's the one to whom I will look. The one who in the midst of that will live by faith in me and my promises. And it's in the midst of that judgment, when everything around you seems to be crumbling, that I will finally raise up and save my people. He recounts this as he looks at chapter 3, what God did in Egypt. God saving his people out of Egypt through judging Egypt, bringing death to bear on all around them. And no doubt that was a scary and, and frightful time, but out of that judgment came salvation. I think we see that again most clearly. A hundred years after the time of Habakkuk, when sin and evil and suffering seemed to reign again in the land. And, and again, the people were, were asking why, why, and, and even mocking uh, the existence of the temple. At this point, though, it was the temple represented by the person of Jesus Christ who himself said, I am the temple. And they mocked him and says, where is your God? Uh, Why is he silent to not rescue you now while you die upon the cross? And God brought his judgment fully to bear upon Christ. But it was there in the midst of that judgment that God brought ultimate salvation for all who look to him in faith. And there in his resurrection where God vindicated what he did in bringing judgment upon Christ so that we might find life in him. God, from Genesis to Revelation, loves to exalt his own glory by by saving us in unexpected ways, doing the unthinkable, by bringing about our salvation in and through judgment. I think as we prepare to look at the rest of this book and as we continue through Hebrews, we would do so standing back and and looking with full adoration at God our Father, who has perfectly demonstrated that he is in full control over evil, who has perfectly demonstrated that he will bring full completion to the end of all evil, who has perfectly demonstrated that he has provided salvation by us simply having faith in him, and that he's done so in bringing his full judgment to bear upon Christ for our salvation. I pray that um, we would read through this this afternoon, be instructed by the great words depicted here, and that uh, we would go home warm and filled uh, 
from this great gospel message in the Minor Prophets. Would you pray for us?